Hey, it's Damon. I'm taking this moment to remind you that at the end of the month, October 30th, we're recognizing Adoptee Remembrance Day. It's a day to remember adopted people we've lost to suicide or who have suffered in adoption along their life's journey. On Instagram, I recently reposted that adoptees are four times more likely to commit suicide than non-adopted people. In the original post, the Instagram handle, the adoptee chameleon, talked about their own struggles with attempting adoption reunion, but never getting a response from their outreach. They said they didn't want to be here anymore and had suicidal ideation. The post reads, I didn't see it as killing myself. I saw it as a solution to the pain I was in. Last week, Pam shared her pain and how participating in and creating an adoptee community, Adoptees Connect, has helped her to recover and help others. You're going to hear similar pain today from Winnie, creator of Voices of Indian Adoptees. She credits the connection to the adoptee community with her ability to find strength to carry on. If you know someone that you think needs help making it through another day, please suggest they find their tribe online, in person, or release their pain through some form of expression or therapy. What we don't release eats away at us from the inside. Adoptee Remembrance Day is October 30th. I hope on that day, you'll take a moment to uplift another adoptee, and hopefully, they'll pass it on to someone else. One thing I've learned about this adoption journey, and also just dealing with any kind of trauma, you can't deal with it by yourself. So having that whole support system, oh my God, has helped me so much. If I did not find this adoption community, I I don't know where I would be right now. I think like they're the ones who have really held me together. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today's adoptee story is Winnie's. She called me from Los Angeles, California. Growing up, her adoptive parents were close to discussing her adoption, rejected her basic desire to socialize, and left her to fend for herself in the name of creating an independent woman but her treatment was unfairly different from that of her adopted sister. Winnie has an arduous road ahead, seeking reunion with her birth mother in India in the face of information inaccuracies and in the wake of massive COVID-19 casualties. Winnie is the creator of Voices of Indian Adoptees, a community for Indian adopted people like herself. This is Winnie's journey. Winnie has lived in Los Angeles for nearly four years, but when we started talking, she revealed that she used to live in Maryland, right up the road from me. It never ceases to amaze me what a small world we live in, and there are adopted people everywhere. Anyway, Winnie was adopted at the age of two years old into a white family of Jewish descent. Her parents told her when she was very young that she is adopted, but Winnie admits she didn't fully understand what being adopted meant, so she would repeat it to people without fully grasping what she was saying. Winnie's home was very strict, and she felt like everything was a no. 
she wasn't allowed to hang out with her friends. There were no slumber parties, no nothing. The answer to everything was no. I also grew up in a house where, like, we couldn't talk about our feelings. So, you know, that has caused me to never be able to, like, open up to people or express myself growing up. I'm getting better at it now, (laughs) but definitely the trauma of always having to be silenced affected me growing up. So I kind of had to deal with that. And then, like, as far as my adoption We would talk about it in our household. Like if I had questions, they would answer, like they would answer the question and then they would shut the conversation down with, you know, we're your family now. And I have the type of parents, you know, if they don't want to talk about something, it's not going to get talked about. So, you know, the minute they hear something they don't like or they don't want to talk about, they just shut it down. So, you know, Like I said, they would answer questions, but having like full blown conversations about adoption was never really, never really happened in my household. So let me ask you just for clarity. Can you tell me about the ethnic makeup of your family? What are you and what are they? Oh, so I'm Indian and then my parents are South Indian. Mm -hmm. I believe I'm from Hyderabad. Um, I'm trying to figure that out right now. So in my paperwork, it says that my orphanage was in Hyderabad, India, and then I was born in Tandoor, India, but growing up, my parents would say the opposite. So it's, like, confusing now, so that's why I'm trying to figure out, okay, where am I really from then in India? So, but I'm Indian, and then my um, parents and family are white. I see. Gotcha. And... As an adoptee, you know, they. it sounds like they told you you were adopted, but that was also fairly obvious then as well. Yeah, yeah, because of the racial difference, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> How was that growing up for you, sort of growing up knowing you can see yourself in the mirror, and I make the presumption that you are not necessarily a person who looks like a white Jewish family. How was it for you to grow up looking so different from your your family so when I was six years old that's when I like understood the racial difference and figured out what like adoption really meant because of a classmate that like pointed it out when my mom came to pick me up you know he bluntly was like how is that your mother she's white and you're dark and you know that's not your mother and stuff So, you know, I do remember my mom being like, she's adopted. And the thing is, you wouldn't think a six-year-old would understand that, but it was weird that I still remember it till this day, but it's like, that's when everything switched. And that's when everything started to make sense to me that like, okay, this is why I get the stares. This is why, you know, people look at me weird when I'm, when a white woman comes to pick me up and stuff because before I didn't understand. So I would say when I was like about six years old, that's when I fully understood it. And then that's when I really started to become uncomfortable because even as I got older, you know, I would still get stares. Like in middle school, I would get stares. People would always be confused. I mean, I think the only people that weren't confused were like my teachers, but everybody else would just kind of stare and ask a ton of questions and everything. So 
you know, it's like I would have to say I'm adopted, but then it's like as a little child, how do you go into full-blown detail about that to explain, you know, the difference and everything? I mean, it was definitely difficult, you know, when people would have, like, when people would um, talk about their family tree and everything, it's like I kind of couldn't really do that. Like, I would do it in a sense, but then I would bring pictures of white family members and everybody would be confused. And it's like, it would be annoying to have to constantly say, like, I'm adopted and stuff. So that's a lot of the stuff that I had to, like, deal with. Right. Because what it ends up doing is putting you in a position of having to clarify your existence yeah. in your life. You know <laughs> exactly. I mean? Exactly. Basic things that you shouldn't mm-hmm. have to always be explaining to someone. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, a topic of conversation that you will revisit for the rest of your life. That exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. And like that's one thing about adoption. It's like it doesn't go away. And like the whole racial difference, I'm always going to have to explain that. Like yeah. I'm not in a relationship now, but like say when I start dating, I'm going to have to explain that to my boyfriend. I'm going to have to explain it to his family. It's like never ending. It's a repetitive cycle for Winnie and other transracial adoptees who will have to explain to significant others and to their own children why their parents are of a different race than themselves. When I asked Winnie about herself as a kid, she said she was very artistic. She could draw and paint from the time she was two years old. Winnie was obsessed with designing stuff, artistic expression, and creating. But she was a very shy kid, possibly because her parents sheltered her so much. It's not that I um, was, like, antisocial, but, like, I remember just being scared of people. So I didn't know how to, like, interact with people. So when either go to camp or it would be the first day of school or something, I remember having, like, severe anxiety because I was just like, okay, what are these things around me? Like, I didn't know what, it kind of almost felt like I didn't know what, the real world was and what human people were because, you know, like I said, my parents, you know, never really, I I remember having friends growing up, but I don't remember really being able to have that full blown interaction with people. So growing up, I was very shy. I was very like timid and everything. Um, I guess you can say a loner too, because I would always like stay to myself (laughs) But, you know, I do remember my teachers just always saying how sweet I was and how nice I was, but I was just always, like, very shy into myself. But now that I'm older, it's, like, the complete opposite. I'm, like, a huge extrovert. I'm loud and crazy, and I love interacting with people now and stuff. Is is it your feeling that you were intentionally sheltered as a child? Like, what is behind the... You know, you said there was some, a lot of saying no to parties and sleepovers and things along those lines. And But you've admitted you were shy as well. But do you feel like there was a, an intentional sheltering that was happening with you? I feel like there was, and I'm still trying to understand why. And I don't know why, for me, it was like that. Because with my sister, who's, she's also adopted, It was actually the complete opposite with her. Like, she got to go out. She got to have parties. She got to have friends and everything. And I don't know why with me, I, 
you know, was pretty much confined to my room the whole time. <laughs> I don't know, honestly. I would ask my parents about that, but, you know, like I said, you can't really have a conversation with them. They just see everything their way. So it's like, it's really difficult to want to get answers. And then you have parents that just shut down everything. So I would like to know why, but I don't, honestly. Is your sister also Indian? She is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Winnie's family was full of lawyers and entrepreneurs. So for her as a creative, she didn't connect with her family on her level. There were no similarities between Winnie and her family members, underscoring that her artistic ability is innate, inherited, definitely not learned or nurtured. Winnie told me that day when her classmate astutely pointed out the visible cultural difference between her and her adoptive mother was a pivotal moment for her. She became obsessed with knowing who her biological mother was. But in that obsession, she also distanced herself from her adoptive parents a bit. She tried to maintain a bond, but Winnie said they're not affectionate people, so it wasn't hard to detach. So it's like if I wanted that type of love and nurturing, my my parents just would never do it. And I don't know if it's because of how they were raised or if they just didn't get the same thing from their parents. So they don't know how to do it with their kids. But, you know, one thing I'm learning about the difference with a birth parent and an adoptive parent, I kind of feel like when it comes to adoptive parents, the ones that kind of neglect us, they kind of, they already know they're not our birth parents. So they kind of have this attitude of, you're not my actual child. So there's no need to have that type of a bond. Or if I don't have that bond with you, like it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, (laughs) you're not my child. So why have the need to want to connect with you and that type of stuff? I'm not going to say like, you know, it was all bad, but, you know, it is kind of hard to say if there were good memories. I do remember a few good moments with my parents, you know, they're very supportive about my career and everything, which helps. But having like that mother daughter type of bond is something I've just kind of I feel like I've tried and it's one of those things where, you know, there's only only so much trying you can do. And I think when you just have the urge to find your birth mother, it just makes you kind of be like, fuck it with your adoptive parents. So that's kind of my whole attitude right now. I faced a lot of rejection from my adoptive parents. So that has kind of caused me to not only not trust them, but it's also affected trying to have a bond with them because it's kind of like we weren't close growing up. We didn't have that closeness or bondness growing up. So why start now type of thing? Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about some of the rejections you experienced from your adoptive parents? What, What are you referring to? So, I feel like there's a difference between pushing your child to be independent and actually pushing them away. And I don't know, like, if for adaptees, we take it more serious when it comes to rejection because we've embedded the trauma of being rejected by by our birth parents. So, you know, I mean, I can say for me, I don't know about other adaptees, but I can say for me, you know, Anytime my parents said no, I took that as rejection. So, 
you know, my parents always would say to me, if I needed help with something, they would always say to me, figure it out. Like, those are like their favorite words <laughs> to say to me. And, you know, there would be times where, like, say I would be at school and I didn't have money for the bus or, you know, I needed a ride somewhere or I needed to be picked up from somewhere or something like that. They would literally tell me to figure it out. I remember, like, a couple of times being stranded, like, at school <laughs> or at my job. And I had to, like, figure out how to get home literally on my own <laughs> because they wouldn't help me and you know as a parent it's like you don't leave your kids stranded i don't care what the situation is right, right. and you know it's just it would be with that sometimes with school stuff they would be like figure it out on your own um and I think that's why like now i'm so independent and that's why i do everything on my own because I guess you can say they pretty much have traumatized me into just doing everything on my own because they were never there. <laughs> wow. So, you know, when it comes to asking for help, I don't do it because, you know, I just, I'm so used to having to do it on my own because that's what I've had to do my whole life, right. <laughs> pretty much. So, and it's, and it's interesting. There's both positive and negatives to, what you've been trained into yes yeah. yeah independent woman you're gonna get it done but yeah on yeah. the flip side of that and i think most adults can acknowledge like we don't get very far in life doing everything by ourselves exactly together. <laughs> exactly and if you're not in a position of being able to ask for help and it's everything like i do real estate investing and i can't like raise money and buy houses all by myself. Yeah. There has to be a team of people that are in support of the entire process. And you have to be able to ask for opinions and help and things like that. And with your yeah. own profession and, you know, makeup design and finding jobs and doing all this other kind of stuff, like it's part of the network. And if you feel like yeah. you have to do everything yourself, you are going to be limited in what you can do because you can only be in one place at one time. And exactly. So, unfortunately, they've trained you into this sort of, independent silo that mm -hmm. is going to be challenging for you to break out of when it is truly time for you to ask for help because you're going to feel like you you can't so at six years old winnie was thrust into the reality that her adoptive mother was not her birth mother she said she can't even remember her parents sitting her down to talk about that situation at school and she feels like that should have been a moment that opened up a conversation between them as she said, her parents didn't want to talk about stuff, and Winnie admitted she was scared to ask them things. But she's also the type of person to dig for information herself. When she was older, Winnie dug through files in her parents' desk and scoured photo albums looking for clues. There was a photo album with pictures of Winnie in the orphanage where she used to live in India. In 2015, Winnie got her own apartment. She was on her own, and it was triggering a lot of emotions about her adoption. I remember making a post about my birth mother, and then my parents flipping out about it. And because of that, when I saw that that was literally them not trying to help me or support me, and them trying to make it about them, that's when I just like decided to not care about their feelings and just kind of try to find out everything on my own. 
So I waited till they went out of town and I know my parents had my information. And so I waited till they went out of town and I went through my mom's office and I literally found like my whole adoption file. Wow. And I just copied everything. Mm. <laughs> I remember taking the file, going back to my apartment, copying everything. I remember one of my friends helped me get the album of me in my orphanage. We went into the garage and like took a ladder because it was all the way up on a shelf and like her boyfriend helped and everything. So I was able to get my album from the orphanage. I just, I took everything and I didn't feel bad about it because at the end of the day, it's, it's mine. <laughs> you know, this is about me. This is about my mother and everything. And you know, as I'm going through the paperwork, that's actually when I learned my birth mother's name. What was that like to see her name on the papers? I was happy, but also very pissed off at my parents because, you know, I I remember seeing my birth certificate at a very young age, but, you know, where it says mother's name, her name was written in cursive, so obviously I couldn't read it. And, you know, growing up, I'm telling people, you know, I'm going to have to get my mother's name written out. I can't read it, all this stuff. But then this whole document that has her name printed, it just was like, okay, you're not about to sit here and say you did not know this paper didn't exist. And... You know, what made me so mad is like, here you are flipping out on me about making a post about my birth mother when you have a whole document downstairs <laughs> in your office <laughs> of my birth mother. And you can't even share that with me, at least. Winnie and I agreed that if she wanted information that her adoptive parents had about her, that she should have been granted access to it and been supported in her feelings. Unfortunately, they didn't share the information they had with her, which made Winnie not trust them. Her parents don't know that Winnie took the information she now has during that covert operation. They, they don't know anything. They don't know that I know her name. They don't know I have the album. They don't know I have my arrival anniversary tape. Like, they, they don't know anything. I know once it comes out that I have all of this, because I'm also doing a documentary about everything. So I already know, like, once that comes out, it's about to be a war zone. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I feel like with adoptive parents, you know, they need to understand at the end of the day, we feel the void for them. And... We have this ongoing trauma that I don't want to say never goes away, but it's always going to be there. Like something is always going to trigger us. And, you know, to not want to show any care and, you know, not just healing, but I think it's very disgusting to see your adoptive child suffering and in pain about them not knowing their birth parents and you're just okay with that like I if I were to adopt I don't know if I want to or not but like I would have so much guilt taking someone's child and you know I personally feel like as an adoptee and this is just my personal opinion but I don't feel like us adoptees should be going to our adoptive parents asking for information 
You know, you took us away from our culture. You took us away from our family. You should be coming up to us, asking us if we're okay, one, and two, if we have an interest in our family and our birth family and wanting to look for them. And if we do, help us do that, (laughs) you know? Like, don't shut it down as, you know, well, we're your family now, so fuck everything else. No, like, I have a whole birth mother and... You know, that's another thing that, that's another anger that I have about my adopted parents is that my birth mother was never acknowledged growing up. So I think that's also another reason why I've become careless in their feelings because it's like, how do you not acknowledge the woman that gave birth to me? You guys have me because of her. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's like, even if it's a situation where like the adoption agency can't update you guys or doesn't want to give you information, you should want me to know. You should want me to have answers and stuff. And, you know, they always told me like my birth mother was too sick to take care of me and all this stuff. And, you know, I kind of feel like every adoptee is told that about their birth mother, like just to kind of, shut the situation down to make it seem like the adoption had to happen. And I don't like that. I think that's like, that needs to stop and it needs to change. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There's a lot in there and I, I can feel your irritation with with, uh, problems that it presents, especially because some of it is residual from, how adoption was set up and carried out previously. Exactly. Right. I feel mm-hmm. my sense is, and I haven't spoken to a lot of adoptees who've been brought to their families and for lack of better terms, what I'll call sort of a new era of adoption, like there was mm-hmm. baby scoop era. And, um, and that was mostly domestic with a lot of international, but you know, I suspect that the international scene hasn't changed very much, but I, I can I sense your, you know, high level of irritation for not having been supported both as an adoptee living a life in a new family, but also as an adopted person who has this connection to another biological family and you're not supported in that acknowledgement of your own emotions, your connection, the people mm-hmm. from whence you came, as you've said, if if your own biological mother was never really acknowledged, it's almost as if they're putting up a wall to pretend that the thing doesn't exist, but it doesn't acknowledge that there is actually a person who has created the baby, as you've said, mm-hmm. that's placed in their family. Yeah. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this woman, so how can you mm-hmm. not acknowledge her? Winnie is searching for her biological mother, but unlike a domestic adoptee, the search can be really challenging internationally. Her search takes her to India, a place where the country may have societal norms that will prevent her from finding her birth mother. Records may be incredibly hard to access, if they exist at all. I was really curious what Winnie's search entailed as she reached across the globe to another continent to learn more about herself. She didn't think her search would be easy, but Winnie admits she's hit a lot of roadblocks. With me being adopted from India, there's a lot of cultural aspects um, that I'm learning about. And 
it's kind of caused me to kind of be on a hold with my adoption search, with the search for my birth mother, because one thing I learned about is that girls are actually not wanted in my country. So girls are seen as a burden. And so when a woman gets pregnant and they find out it's a girl, a lot of the women are forced to either abort their baby, kill their baby, or abandon their baby. And, you know, I was told my birth mother and birth father were in a relationship, but he had left her when she was pregnant with me. And that is very common in my country. But, you know, with me being a girl, I'm pretty sure that's the reason why he left, if that's even true. And, you know, even if she didn't have to deal with the dowry system and, you know, this no girl policy type of situation she still came from a village that can you know pretty much cast her out because i do know that they're completely against you know women having kids before marriage and you know she could have gotten shunned by her family um i know it says in my paperwork that like she was just too poor she was too sick she had no help so that was pretty much the main reason why she had to give me away, but I always said, like, no, my birth mother wanted me, you know, she had me, she just was too sick or whatever, but then as I get older and now I'm learning all of this, it's like, you know, as adoptees, we want to have that, like, hope of our birth mothers feel the same exact way that they had the urge to want to meet us and, you know, it'll be a happy reunion. But in some cases, you know, that that's not the case. I don't even know if um, my birth mother would even want to meet me. And it hurts because it's your birth mother. You know, you would want to know your birth mother who gave birth to you. And, you know, I'm kind of at a point in my life where, you know, I can't face any more rejection. And I think getting rejected by my birth mother, that would just, I think that would just be my final straw with living life, if that makes sense. And I don't, I don't know if I want to risk that, but then it's a type of rejection. Like, I just don't think I could handle. Yeah. And, you know, it is, like I said, even if I were to go to my country, it's also one of those things where, like, if I do try to look for her, it's one of those things where I would probably have to even go, like, undercover. Like, that's how intense it is in my country because it's, like, I would have to do everything in my power to protect her identity. And the fact that I have to go to that extreme is ridiculous because... I really want to be able to find her and then, you know, bring her back to the U.S. so that she can have a better life and she can escape from all of the, you know, I don't know what you would call it, all of the rules and stuff in my country that they have for women and everything. I want her to be able to, like, escape all of that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, on top of that, too, I don't even know if she's alive or dead. So yeah. it's like, That's right. yeah. you know... 
you're so I want to let me take a let's pause for a second. I want to give you a moment to gather yourself, but I also want to build you up a little bit because I don't want you to tear yourself down unnecessarily. Right. I feel like you're in a place and forgive me if this is not correct, but I feel like you're in a place of sort of building a lot of narratives that might not be true. And, I have the habit of doing that. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and so <laughs> I, I really want to sort of push you away from that and caution you against it because there's going to be some stuff that's well within your control and there's going to be some stuff that's completely out of your control and there's nothing you can do about it. And I, I was really sort of scared when I heard you say, I just don't know if I would want to live anymore because there's so much to live for outside of that hopeful relationship with her right it Mm -hmm. she it's true let's face it i'm not gonna bullshit you she might not want to meet you but you know what that Mm -hmm. might not be her fault either right yeah that rejection might be coming from a place that has absolutely nothing to do with you as a person and i would hate to see you take that and own it when it's not yours to own it's Mm -hmm. it's hers personally it's the country and the society of, of where she lives. It's the potentially male domination of that society. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I don't want you to bear basically the burden of all adoptions by mm-hmm. you know, taking on what could end up possibly being that rejection when in fact there's so much to learn along the way. And mm-hmm. And even trying to reach out and offering her a space to connect with you, it may go further than you realize to know that she was found and to know that you're okay. Because, mm-hmm. you, I mean, think about this. If, for example, this woman, let's make the assumption that she was a young woman and she got pregnant unexpectedly and she's had a girl and girls are not favored and you now are available for adoption. There's so much on top of her right now at that yeah. moment in her life, not knowing what happened to that infant that she either chose to or was forced to give away. Just knowing that you're alive is going to possibly be humongous for her. Mm-hmm. And and she just might not be. She could be in the middle of a Mecca or in the, you know, depths of a small village and you might never find her or you might Mm -hmm. connect with her. And if she knows that you've tried to reach out, she'll be so thankful to just know, Oh, that child is okay. You know what I mean? So there's, we could go on and on on a variety of scenarios, but I just really (laughs) want to caution you against thinking that your life is done because she is not able to connect with you. It might feel like rejection when it's really not also. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I just, I, when you look in the mirror, I want you to see yourself as being okay and that everything that happens along this journey is just part of the journey because that really is what it is. A lot of this stuff is out of your hands. And if you mm-hmm. if you bring it back into your own heart and take it as because of you, then it's going to be way more hurtful, I I feel, than it needs to be, okay? hmm So I hope that was helpful. It was. <laughs> Good. Good. But I, I, yo, don't get me wrong. I understand how upset you are. I mean, you've, you've lived with some rejection. 
across your life as an adoptee and you've seen a sister who has gotten, it sounds like, better treatment than you. And and mm-hmm. so you've lived with question marks over your head. And now you're embarking on this voyage to try to find this person. And it is filled with question marks too. I, I can I am I'm not mm-hmm. trying to be insensitive to what you've endured. I I'm not, certainly no. I'm with you. I hear you. From day to day, Winnie is in and out of her search. She keeps telling herself she needs to dig into the search, but it takes a lot to get going. You have to be in a strong mental space to accept the results as you find them. Plus, Winnie is balancing work and the rest of her life. She said she does have plans to go to India, but with COVID restrictions and the nearly half million casualties her country suffered, it's really challenging to face that massive loss of life and what it might mean for her search. My country had like the biggest hit a couple of months ago and you know, millions of people have died and that also has taken like a mental toll on me and a lot of other Indian adoptees because it's kind of like, okay, we may have lost our birth family with like before getting to meet them. And um, I think a lot of us are kind of like trying to process that right now. And I don't even think they're even letting anybody into the country. But I think once things like really do clear up, I know me and a few of other Indian adoptees have discussed going together. I think we're kind of just waiting for like, you know, approval, I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. You know, like once they allow travel, I think it's one of those things we just have to kind of just go and do it on our own. I know the village that my mother is in. I know her name. And I think, honestly, like, that's all I kind of really need. And then I just kind of have to go from there. Like, I do have her information. But one thing I'm learning about international adoptions, I think it does happen a little bit in the U.S. as well. But they do lie on our paperwork. So I think I would have to make sure that, like, my birth mother's name is the actual name that I have in the document. Mm -hmm. I have watched a couple of documentaries of Indian girls trying to go look for their birth mothers, and they end up finding their information is, like, completely false. So they have nothing to go on. Um... And I would hate to have to, like, go to my country and then think that I have her name and everything. And, like, it's the right name, it's the right village, and then I find out that it's, like, a completely different person. Because they actually do that in my country. That's actually one of the things that they do to protect their identities. Mm -hmm. In some cases of the women, say it's, like, a young teen girl, you know, getting pregnant, you know, they'll have, like, an older woman fill in and you know, use her name or use her picture or something so that the adoption can go through or basically to protect their identities. We agreed it's going to be best to go to India in a group because this is a long uphill journey and it would be tough to traverse this path alone. Winnie has to hope she can de-identify herself to even do the investigation and make contact with her birth mother. Then, she'll be left hoping the woman wants to meet her. Winnie mentioned having a group of Indian adoptees she hoped to travel with. When I asked her about her involvement in the Indian adoptee community, 
She said that this year was when she really started advocating. I started a group called Voices of Indian Adoptees, and it's basically a community for adoptees from India. Some are in reunions, some, you know, are very private about their situations, which is normal. We've been so traumatized with, you know, either the process or knowing the reason why we've been given up. So some are like, it takes them a while to open up and it's definitely understandable. I've actually met a few Indian adoptees that actually just found out that they were adopted and they're grown adults. Really? And yeah. Um, are they adopted into homogenous families? They're Indian parents of Indian children? Yeah. Wow. So some late discovery. And yeah, late discovery adoptees. Yep. Wow. So monthly I try to hold like support group meetings. And then, you know, we also have other meetings, other Indian adoptees who are advocacies as well. They hold meetings just kind of like, you know, sometimes we'll discuss like random things. Sometimes you know, we'll have a meeting like right before the holidays because some holidays can be very triggering for adoptees. So I definitely try to hold meetings like before that so that people can, you know, kind of come together and kind of just express what they're dealing with. And, you know, we have happy times as well. You know, three Indian adoptees that I've connected with, I've grown very close with. Um, they're all male and, um, you know, having that support system, one thing I learned about this adoption journey and also just dealing with any kind of trauma, you can't deal with it by yourself. So having that whole support system, oh my God, has helped me so much. If I did not find this adoption community, I, I don't know where I would be right now. I think like they're the ones who have really held me together and kept me sane really because it's so comforting to see other people you know going through the same thing that you're going through or say you have a trigger you can post that online and you'll have several adoptees messaging you being like i went through the same exact thing or that happened to me the other day and it's very comforting to know that there's other people going through the same thing that you're going through and you know, even if my advice to people about that is like, even if you don't want to share, you know, your personal stories with anybody, like, like I said, you can't get through anything by yourself. So finding a community, finding a support system, I feel like is honestly the best way to like get through anything. I agree 100%. And I'm so glad that you did find and create a community where you can mm -hmm. connect with others because one of the unique things about adoption is that you can't always tell when someone is adopted. Yeah. So you, oh no, you have to seek <laughs> out a community in order to make that connection, and and there's a real release of connecting with people who can relate. Right? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's one thing to explain it to somebody, and and when exactly. you explain <laughs> the adoption experience to a non-adoptee, they intellectually understand what you're going through, but the the deeper sort of more emotional connection is something that would take either a longer time to get to if they can reach it at all. But with an adopted mm -hmm. person, that is an immediate understanding. 
There's no mm-hmm. sort of additional layer of explanation to help you understand exactly. that perspective. <laughs> they are adopted too. They understand what you've lived through. And if they haven't lived through it themselves, at least they can more directly empathize with it. And so being part of a community is massively valuable. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that you've created one, I think, is just an invaluable resource for people out there to connect with. Because, you know, you know, I'm I'm in a bunch of adoption, you know, Facebook groups and things like that. And it, there's something to be said for understanding everybody's experience. But the fact that you've created Voices of Indian Adoptees makes it very specific to people who can identify from a specific cultural perspective that other people are Mm -hmm. not going to have. And there I've seen, you know, Russian adoptees and Latin and Hispanic adoptee communities, and there's African-American and black adoptee groups as well. Those are some of the places we also need to go to talk Mm -hmm. to each other so that we have a further and more deep understanding of one another's perspective. So I think it's awesome that you've created that. Well done. Thank you. Yeah, that's another reason why I created it, because like it was something I actually realized that you really don't hear about Indian adoptions. So that was like really the main reason why I wanted to start this group and community and bring awareness to um, the issues in my country and stuff Mm -hmm. to, you know, let people know like, hey, adoption really isn't peachy and keen. Like these are some of the reasons why our birth mothers had to give us away. Like, it's not fair to us, yeah. you know? Well, Winnie, thank you so much for being here with me. I really appreciate it. And it was so interesting. Of course. Hear, sort of where you're coming from and, and where you're trying to go. I think I love the independence that you've grown into, but, you know, I hate that it has sort of held you back from wanting to seek help from people. But by the same token, I feel like that independence is going to drive you towards this commitment to locating your biological mother and i just wish you the best of luck in in your travels to get there your journey to find her and her acceptance to at least want to meet you see you face to face i mean you've got some hurdles there's going to be a language barrier Mm -hmm. and so many other things but at least sort of getting an acknowledgement of your existence i hope will be you know sort of supremely you know healing for you thank you thank you so much for having me too wish you all the best okay take care stay safe all right all right you too bye-bye Winnie. Bye. hey it's me it's always hard to hear that an adopted person didn't feel supported growing up but to learn that winnie's parents also didn't want to talk about her adoption rejected her requests to socialize with friends and isolated her and had her information but wouldn't share it with her made me question why she was treated that way, especially when her sister didn't receive the same treatment. Winnie was forced into autonomy, driving her to seek her own answers in her house when her adoptive parents weren't around to shut her down. But accessing the information her parents had was the easy part compared to what lies ahead in her home country of India. There will be cultural barriers, language barriers, possible inaccurate and therefore misleading information to sift through, and the challenge of navigating her own feelings in a foreign land. For international adoptees, the search for truth can have many more hurdles than most people realize or have the strength to face. I'm Damon Davis, and I'm sending strength to Winnie, the Indian adoptee community, and all international adoptees along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? Really?